Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. People say change doesn't happen without a struggle. That's certainly true for 1992. It's a year of upheaval in America. In April, the country is rocked by riots in L.A. Can we, can we get along? At least 100,000 Florida homes are without power right now. In August, Hurricane Andrew savages the East Coast. And in politics, there is a change in the wind. We can do better, and we must. A 12-year Republican reign is up for grabs. But for now, George H.W. Bush is still president and running on an impressive foreign policy record despite throwing up in the Prime Minister's lap during a state visit to Tokyo, Japan. In another part of Japan, just weeks before the November election, the USS Bella Wood docks in its home port of Sasebo. There was a U.S. Navy base there, and this was part of the Bella Wood's regular deployment. They would resupply the ship and give the sailors a break from their duties. 22-year-old Alan Schindler is one of the 950 sailors on board the ship. Alan Schindler was a radio man on the Bella Wood. His reasons for joining the Navy were the classic reasons, to see the world, to have an adventure. He made up his mind he was going in the Navy. I was proud that he was going to go serve our country. A widow, Dorothy Hages raised four children in the Chicago suburbs. Alan, her oldest son, is talented and fun-loving. Growing up, he always had a big heart. Alan loved animals, and he was always bringing something home. One time he brought snakes into the house. He was a jokester. He loved doing things to drive me crazy. When he really cared about somebody, that person was everything to him. After graduating high school, Alan joins the Navy and goes to boot camp in San Diego. 1988 is a good time to enlist. The last time the military had significant combat was the Vietnam War. From her home in the suburbs of Chicago, Dorothy looks forward to hearing about her son's life at sea. 
He would call me at least once a week. He'd tell me what was going on. He was in Hawaii. He was in Australia. He'd bring home different things from the different countries. I was just so proud of him. My husband had been in the Navy, and my father had been in the Navy. She idolized the Navy. Alan's formal naval picture was like a shrine in their house. Alan is thrilled when, in January 1991, he is assigned as a radio man to one of the most prestigious ships in the fleet, the USS Midway. He celebrates the occasion by starting a new journal. I'll be proud to say I served aboard the USS Midway. Some dreams do come true. The same month that Allen joins the ship, President George H.W. Bush declares war on Iraq. Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. The USS Midway serves as the flagship for naval air forces during the Desert Storm campaign in the Persian Gulf. In his journal, he said this was one of the great experiences of his life. There's a togetherness on a ship. There's a shared sense of identity. Our shipmates are our brothers, our close brothers. They're brothers that we never had. They're brothers that never understood us. They're just, you know, we work with them side by side. We do everything together. The Gulf War ends in late February of 1991, and the USS Midway departs the Persian Gulf that March. Allen receives a patch for his involvement in the campaign, and he adds his own memento. He had put the Midway tattoo on his arm because he loved that ship. After 11 months on board, Seaman Schindler is transferred from his beloved Midway to the USS Bella Wood. The ship has a reputation for being less orderly than most vessels. It was nothing like his experience on Midway. Its crew was kind of wild. The Bella Wood crew had fights with the crews from other ships. We did everything together, three to six months. And without women, without beer, without any breaks, that builds up. After he was transferred, he just seemed to change. He just wasn't happy on that ship. But Alan doesn't share details of what's bothering him. I guess he just didn't want me to worry. The USS Bella Wood is docked in Sasebo, Japan, preparing for a voyage to the Philippines. As his crew members make arrangements, Alan Schindler, who's been on board for 10 months, makes his weekly call to his mom, Dorothy. He has good news to share. Alan called Dorothy from Sasebo, Japan, to tell her that he would be home soon. He told me he'd be home for sure before Christmas, but he didn't tell me why he was getting out. He had met with the ship's lawyer, and the paperwork was in process for him to leave the Navy. Dorothy thinks it's odd he would be leaving the Navy before his tour ended, but doesn't press for details. And after the usual eight or nine minute conversation, mother and son hang up. He was excited that he would soon see his mom. He wanted to be with the family. The next day, Dorothy is at her home in Chicago. I had been at my church helping with the youth program. All of a sudden, there was a knock on the door, and it was the sailor. Anyone knows that if a sailor comes to your house, that something terrible's happened. He told me that my son had been killed in Japan. 
He wouldn't tell me anything else. Dorothy questions the sailor about her son's death. If he wasn't in combat, was he killed in the line of duty? But he doesn't provide any answers. He didn't tell me if he'd been shot or if it was an accident or anything. The officer promises details to come. He left the card for me to call if I had any questions. For an excruciating three days, Dorothy calls the number on the card. Her calls go unanswered. Finally, she is connected with a higher-ranking naval officer, who tells her that Alan got into a fist fight with two other men and died as a result of his injuries. The horrible news does little to ease her mind. He still didn't tell me why Alan was killed. He told me that the two people who did it were arrested. She thought the Navy would play fair and straight with her, that she would be owed a full explanation of what had happened to her son. I just want to know the truth. And all I did was pray about it and cry because I couldn't take it. No mother or father is supposed to bury their children. Their children are supposed to bury them. The only real news of Alan's death comes from a Navy press release put out the day after his murder. It said this was a beating death with no known racial or drug overtones, which was extremely vague. The press release goes largely unnoticed, but it does catch the interest of one local reporter. Rick Rogers works at the independent military newspaper, Stars and Stripes. Someone being killed on a base is, it doesn't happen very often. It immediately caught our attention. 6,000 miles away, he starts asking the same questions that have tortured Dorothy. What was the motivation? What was the reasoning behind it? Very early on, they were able to say what it wasn't. They weren't so forthcoming to say what it was. I accept tonight the responsibility that you have given me to be the leader of this, the greatest country in human history. On November 3rd, six days after the death of Alan Schindler, Bill Clinton ends 12 years of Republican control of the White House. But Dorothy Hages isn't paying attention to politics. Instead, she is waiting for her son's body to come home. The whole 10 days, every time the phone rang, I would think it was gonna be Alan telling me it was all a mistake. Finally, Alan's body is returned home. At the funeral parlor, Dorothy stares at the casket that holds her son. The Navy said, don't look at it. Don't open the coffin. There was no way they were keeping me from that. The only thing I wanted was to hug him and kiss him goodbye. But Dorothy could never have imagined the horror she would find. Alan's face was completely smashed in. The shoe print was embedded in his face. Dorothy is sure of one thing. This was no fist fight. This looks like murder. Murder. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Navy has told Dorothy Hages her son, Alan, was killed in a fist fight in Sasebo, Japan. One hundred and fifty of his loved ones attend his service. It's little consolation to Dorothy. The face of the young man in that coffin, beaten to a pulp, is not the face she remembers. I couldn't even tell you that was my son. That was a body in that coffin with a uniform on. The Navy hasn't shared any information about what actually happened to her son. The story really began when the Bellowood made a port of call in Sasebo, Japan in October of 1992. It's the last night in port before the USS Bellowood is due to leave for the Philippines. A sailor named Jonathan walks into the Naval Investigative Services office, covered in blood. He's a cook on the USS Bellowood. I was pretty new. I was on the ship for about six months and I was part of the supply division. He tells officers he's a witness to a horrible crime. Jonathan had been taking advantage of the last night of freedom. Like most U.S. sailors stationed at Sasebo, he had put on his civilian clothes and left the base to visit Sailor Town. Sailor Town was a street and a few alleys that were dedicated to the sailors that were stationed in Sasebo. It's full of karaoke bars and places where you can buy beer for $5 and full of 
local bar girls. Around 11 p.m., Jonathan is returning to base after a few drinks. He decides to use a bathroom in the public park on the walk between Sailortown and the base. This is just a public bathroom with glass blocks, so you can't really see through them, but you can see shadows or light comes through. As he approaches, he hears odd grunting sounds. Because of the noises, what he thought was happening was a couple of people having sex in this public bathroom. But as he watches, it's clear that is not what is happening. I see this guy jump and jump and jump, not with one foot, but with both feet. It was jumping really hard. There's another guy, he was in the threshold of the door. And that's when he sees a third shape. I'm trying to make out the figure on the ground. It didn't process. I got closer and closer. And then I could see the figure clearly. It was a human on the floor. You can hear the sounds of his blood, of his gurgling of the blood. It was a very horrific sound. Jonathan runs away from the bathroom to call for help. I say, hey, man, somebody's getting really up over there. You got to come. He leads the shore patrol to the bathroom. But by the time they respond, the two perpetrators are gone. What they find is grotesque and unreal. First thing you look at is his face. His jaw was broken. His eyeballs were inside of his eyelids. It just, you just couldn't tell it was human. It was gurgling the blood, trying to breathe. It was really horrible. We tried to revive him, pumping the air through his mouth, which doesn't work because of the blood was coming out of his mouth. They were wondering, who is this? Then Jonathan suddenly notices the USS Midway tattoo and cries out, Holy that's Schindler. This my shipmate. And they took a pulse and they said, no, he's, he's gone. At 12.09 a.m., Alan Schindler is pronounced dead. As the ambulance leaves the scene with Alan's lifeless body inside, Jonathan is told to report to the NIS office at the Sasebo Naval Base. But when he arrives covered with Alan's blood, the NIS investigator is immediately suspicious and interrogates him about the attack. Describing what he witnessed, Jonathan tells him that he thinks the two assailants were sailors, in their 20s, Caucasian, and like him, dressed in civilian clothes. The clothing that they wore, that stained in my brain forever. Jean jacket and blue jeans. Shore patrol are dispatched to scour Sailor Town for the assailants. Meanwhile, the local Sasebo police process the crime scene, taking photos of the bathroom, blood splatter, and footprints. Until these assailants are found, Jonathan could be treated as a possible suspect. He's sent back to the ship, but his night is not over yet. I was told to go talk to the XO. The XO was the executive officer. He's unsure what to expect when he's directed to the office of Captain Douglas Bratt, who's there with the XO. It was just like a movie. The executive officer was sitting there, and the captain was in the back smoking a cigar. Jonathan, again, is asked to describe what he witnessed. And by the executive officer's demeanor, it's clear he's no longer a suspect. The executive officer explains to me whatever happened in that park, you were not to tell anybody, not even your friends, not the media, not your family, nobody. Keep it secret. 
because we don't want what happened to that guy to happen to you. While the body of seaman Alan Schindler is on its way to be autopsied, the Bellowood departs for the Philippines as scheduled. On board is a frightened Jonathan who witnessed Alan's murder and fears the assailants may be fellow sailors. I was afraid for my life. I didn't know if the killers were on the ship or not on the ship. While Jonathan is watching his back, he gets tasked with cleaning out Alan's belongings. Well, the XO did instruct me to go down to Alan's locker, whatever was in Alan's locker, like his diary. I was to put everything in a plastic bag for Alan's mother. The Navy puts out a sparsely worded press release on the crime, stating two men had been arrested. Rick Rogers writes it up. We didn't know who they were, but that's not surprising. The Navy and law enforcement in general, uh, they may hold off a little bit until they charge somebody. They're just being held for suspicion. The question was, what was the motivation? There is no explanation for the assault in the release. I recall being very intensely interested as my editors were. So I was calling the Navy all the time to get as much information as I can. He's particularly interested in an Article 32, or court-martial hearing. You'd find out a lot during an Article 32. They have to go into detail about what happened and motivation and who did what to whom when. The Navy Public Affairs Office assures Rogers they will keep him informed of any hearing. But after a while, his calls go unanswered. The military had tried to put pressure on Stars and Stripes to write pro-military stories. Stars and Stripes was supposed to be an independent newspaper, and he can't be independent if the military is dictating what stories should be done. Rick's investigative instincts tell him that something seems different about this case. Meanwhile, back in the suburbs of Chicago, Alan Schindler's mother, Dorothy Hages, still remains in the dark about what happened to her son. She's beginning to feel that the Navy has forgotten about her son entirely. When my husband had died, who had been in the Navy, I got a letter from the president at the time. When Alan was killed, I didn't receive anything from the Bush senior, and even that hurt. But when she voices her concern with the Navy, they are less than helpful. I was told to don't worry about it, everything was going to be taken care of, not to talk to the press. As she becomes more and more fed up, Dorothy decides to take matters into her own hands. Alan's death changed Dorothy, turned her into a kind of a, a firebrand. She was left to try to figure out what had happened to her son. She now launches her own investigation, writing to Illinois Senator Paul Simon. We wrote letters and sent them to different senators and congressmen. And going right to the top, a letter is sent to President-elect Bill Clinton. We weren't getting any answers. We want to know what's happening. As Dorothy searches for the truth in Illinois, back in Tokyo, Rick discovers alarming news. I was shocked. I had gotten stonewalled. He finds out that an Article 32, or court-martial hearing, has already taken place for Charles Vins, one of the sailors connected to Allen's murder. There was no public participation or reporters allowed or in the court-martial, something that the Navy attributed to a, a bureaucratic screw-up. 
the Navy had unquestionably thwarted the public interest by, by blocking media. Uh, no question in my mind. Frustrated but not discouraged, Rick decides to double down. There are still many questions surrounding this case and one sailor who is being held but has not been charged. If you're thinking about Alan Schindler's family, shouldn't people really have an idea of what happened? What was the reasoning behind it? And then, a startling revelation comes from a new source. A letter from someone outside the Navy. The letter was the big thing that happened that kind of opened things up. We really got the first glimpse of what the motivation was. Armed with his new information, Rick feels he needs to reach out to Alan's mother. I owed it to her to try to tell her what I had found out. Rogers calls surprises Dorothy, who has been kept in the dark. He shares with her what he knows, that two of Alan's shipmates were involved in his death, and that one of them, Airman Charles Vins, has already been court-martialed. I was angry. I was angry with our country. Navy knew from the time they came to the door and told me that Alan was dead. They knew it was two people from the ship that did it, but they didn't tell me. And Rick has more information to share. It came in a letter to his paper from three civilians who work as entertainers near Sasebo. Some of the entertainers there had uh, befriended Alan Schindler. They were shocked and horrified to hear about his murder, and even more horrified to realize that the Navy had no intention of disclosing the circumstances of his murder. Believing that the Navy is intentionally misleading the public, Allen's friends fire off letters to every newspaper and TV outlet they can. Only Rick Rogers of Stars and Stripes responds. He shares the letter with Dorothy, hoping she can corroborate it. To whom it may concern, a friend of ours was brutally beaten beyond recognition and left to die in a park bathroom urinal. The reason for the murder was reported by the Navy as a difference of opinion, not the grievous crime of gay bashing that it was. Is this true? Was he in fact gay? Gay bashing, both figurative and real, is common in the early 90s. From Topeka, Kansas, Minister Phelps came to Lincoln to stage an anti-gay rally. And amidst the AIDS crisis, many homosexuals remain closeted. I think that encourages more bashing, more attacks on gays and lesbians. President-elect Bill Clinton promises to lift the ban on gays in the military. Should people who have served their country with distinction, many of them in, with battlefield ribbons, be booted out of the military? That is the issue. But Congress and the military don't agree. I think open homosexuality is incompatible with military service. At the time that Alan was killed, you were not allowed to be gay and in the Navy. It was grounds for automatic discharge. Well aware of the stakes, Rogers delicately relays the information to Dorothy. What I called her, and I certainly I didn't speak in terms of absolutes because I, I, I don't know. You don't want to guess about something like that. Alan had been out with girls. Alan went to the prom. I just didn't believe him because I didn't understand it. While she processes Rick's phone call, now more than ever, Dorothy is determined to get to the bottom of this. If Alan is gay, is this why he was killed? Is the Navy involved? They were trying to cover up the whole thing. My son was dead. The only thing I wanted was justice. 
Reporter Rick Rogers, armed with a key piece of evidence, now believes seaman Alan Schindler was killed because he was gay. After sharing his findings with Alan's mother, Dorothy, Rogers publishes his article for the military newspaper Stars and Stripes. The story came out, and I told Mrs. Hages, there's a good chance there's going to be a whole bunch of media on her doorstep in, in short order. While it is unclear whether Alan Schindler's admitted homosexuality is connected in any way to the motive of this killing, it is clear that possibility is what is most unsettling to the U.S. military. Once the story broke that he was gay, that phone didn't quit ringing. In his article, Rogers reports that Charles Vins received a paltry one-year sentence for his part in Alan's murder all part of an exchange for testifying against the other sailor involved in the crime, a man named Terry Helvey. And he's given a dishonorable discharge in an agreement to testify he becomes a witness for the prosecution. Helvey is yet to be charged for the crime, but is being held in the brig. The whole process has taken place in secret. The Navy publicly states a commitment to justice for Alan Schindler. But there are many who are skeptical. Could the Navy conduct an impartial investigation of the murder of a gay sailor when they had a policy of not allowing gays in the military? In 1992, Mike Petrellis is a founding member of Queer Nation, a gay rights organization. That first day that I read the story, I picked up the phone and started calling the Pentagon for some answers. Petrellis's next call is to Dorothy Hages. I was calling her to offer some help as a gay advocate to say, I want to work with you to secure justice for your son. Dorothy has her reservations. She was grieving the loss of her son. She was angry at the military. She was also saying her son wasn't gay. But she is desperate to learn what happened. And I'm going to get answers of what went on on that ship. I just didn't want this to happen to any other mother's son. As Dorothy waits for Helvey to be formally charged, she receives an envelope from the Navy. It's Alan's diary. In Alan's own words, she now learns about the man he was and his state of mind in the last months of his life. When he was put on the midway, he talks about how happy he is. After he was transferred to the Bellawood, everything just seemed to change. Dorothy immediately realizes the importance of Alan's journal. His diary describes taunts and threats from crew members. I don't have to worry about dying and going to hell because I'm already there. One month before his murder, en route from Hawaii to Japan, Dorothy reads that Schindler reaches a breaking point. He had requested to see the captain, and they weren't going to grant it to him. So being a radio man, he went on the radio. Schindler sends out an unauthorized radio transmission on a secure fleet-wide channel, a telling call sign. Too cute to be straight. He was acknowledging there and then that he was gay. As a result of this prank message, Alan is called to Captain Brandt's quarters for a proceeding known as a captain's mast. It was a disciplinary event. I go to captain's mast tomorrow. I requested it to be closed for confidential reasons. 
The captain disregards Alan's request. Two to three hundred people attended this disciplinary hearing. So that's when everyone found out, had they not already known, that he was gay. Some of Alan's shipmates see it as an open invitation to harass him with impunity. People would bump into him in the hallway and call him a fag. They spilled soup on him. There's people that actually get their ass kicked for just being associated with anyone that was homosexual. Terry Helvey was known to be part of a group aboard the Bella Wood that was openly hostile towards anyone they suspected of being gay. People knew that Terry Helvey was a hothead. His commanding officers knew that. And apparently, um, Terry Helvey didn't like Schindler. Schindler outranked Helvey. Helvey didn't like the fact that Schindler was able to tell him what to do. Helvey was giving Schindler a harassing time whenever he could on the ship. Schindler reports all of the harassment he suffers to the executive officer. But nothing is done. He continues to document his experience in his journal. I don't want anybody else to go through the torture that I did. Just got to watch my back. Finally, Alan asked to be transferred and discharged. He went to the captain and declared he was gay. And he stated that he was tired of living a lie and that if you can't be yourself, then who can be? With the help of a naval lawyer, Alan submits paperwork to request an honorable early discharge. That's really the last official act he did before he was killed. More people are finding out about me. It scares me a little. You never know who would want to injure or cease my existence. I didn't know him, but I made a commitment to Alan Schindler that I would do all that I could as an activist to secure justice on his behalf. And he finds a willing partner in Dorothy Hages, who now accepts who her son was. They knew Alan was gay. They should have got Alan off the ship, but they did nothing to protect him. Today, U.S. Navy Airman Apprentice Terry Helvey was arraigned in Yokosuka, Japan, on charges of killing a homosexual shipmate last October. If convicted, Helvey faces a maximum penalty of death. Schindler's mother awaits the trial for the answers. For now, she's left with only her son's medals and memories. With Helvey finally charged, Dorothy, Mike, and Rick Rogers make plans to attend his trial. But even with all the information available, there's still no assurance that the Navy will admit the reason for the crime. The Navy's purpose of the court-martial was to show that everything was on the up and up, but the elephant in the room was why? Why did he do this? And Dorothy still isn't convinced they will give her son justice. They had already made a deal with Vince, and I don't want any deals made with Halvey too. One of the two men charged in the death of Alan Schindler has already been released, serving only a portion of a reduced sentence in exchange for testimony against Airman Apprentice Terry Helvey. Authorities believe Helvey is the man who dealt the fatal blows. Along with charges of assault and lying under oath, Airman Apprentice Terry Helvey has been indicted for the premeditated murder of his shipmate. A death sentence is now a possibility but many are still not confident that Schindler will receive justice. The Navy gave a sweetheart deal to the accomplice, Charles Vince. Why wouldn't they let Halby off with maybe just a few years in the brig? The concern is valid. 
In the days leading up to Helvey's trial, the Navy is working on a plea deal that will take the death penalty off the table. But this time, before they make a decision, the Navy chooses to confer with Alan's mother, Dorothy Hages. I agreed for them to not have the death penalty because I felt that if he was put to death, I was hurting his mother as much as I was hurting. Terry Helvey pleads guilty to a lesser charge of murder with intent of bodily harm. His sentencing hearing is held in May at the U.S. Naval Base at Yokosuka, Japan. Dorothy Hages had been waiting for this moment since she'd seen her son's mutilated body in his coffin. Along with Helvey's disclosure, NIS investigators will testify and provide Helvey and Vin's initial statements, offering Dorothy her first opportunity to learn exactly what happened the night Alan was murdered seven months earlier. Terry Helvey and Charles Vins admitted to being in the park in Sasebo that night. They had been drinking, heavily drinking. It's nearly 11 o'clock when the park is closing. And they saw Alan Schindler. He was on his way back to the ship, and the two sailors started following Alan. Helvey said to Vins, let's go with him. Alan went into the bathroom to relieve himself before he went on the ship. They followed him into the bathroom. Schindler was using the urinal, and, and Helvey saddled up next to him. Helvey cold-cocked him right in the nose and dropped him to the floor. Vins joins the fray, delivering a kick to Schindler's head. Helvey told Vins to back off because he wanted to do the beating. First, he kicked him several times in the head, then he, he worked his way down the body. Vins recalls not being able to watch, and when he leaves the bloody bathroom scene, he sees Helvey using his entire body mass of more than 200 pounds. He stepped on his throat just to make sure he can never breathe again. The autopsy report of Alan Schindler reveals the horrifying details. His heart was bruised. His kidneys were the consistency of mashed tomatoes. It boggles your mind to think of the type of rage that would take to, to do that to somebody. The forensic pathologist says that Schindler's injuries were similar to what a person would receive from a high-speed car crash. In his interview with NIS after the murder, Helvey is clear about his motive. Helvey talked about not liking the fact that Schindler was gay. Helvey initially thought that would exonerate him. It was okay to beat the living daylights out of a gay shipmate. Near the conclusion of the hearing, Helvey attempts to apologize to the Navy. Terry Helvey broke down in tears. He tried to give a statement and he, he couldn't continue. He disgraced his ship, his captain. He disgraced the Navy. And finally, he tells Dorothy Hages he's sorry. He said he knew he couldn't take back what he had done. He couldn't bring Schindler back to life. The jury deliberation is brief. Terry Helvey is sentenced to life in prison and given a dishonorable discharge. When the verdict came in, I'm saying, thank you, thank you, God. All I wanted was a simple act of justice. And I felt like I finally got it. Even with the trial completed, the Navy still refuses to release the full report of the investigation. 
The Navy exonerated the Navy and basically said the Navy had done nothing wrong. In the wake of the trial, President Clinton signs a controversial military service bill. The current version of the policy is known as don't ask, don't tell. It is the best way to proceed because it provides a sensible balance. Really, don't ask, don't tell would have done nothing to protect Schindler. It really didn't do much to protect any gay sailors as far as I'm concerned. Over the next few years, from congressional hearings to a march on Washington, Dorothy becomes a champion for gay rights. The crowd would just yell, go for it, Mom, go for it. It made me feel good because I knew I was fighting for Alan. Finally, after 23 years and repeated Freedom of Information Act requests, the Navy releases a conclusive 900-page report admitting that Alan Schindler was harassed. The Navy knew about it and did nothing to stop it. Alan Schindler is the accidental martyr who brought about some very important changes. His murder became a reminder to all of the struggles faced by gay service members before him and since. I wish that when he was home that last time, he'd have said more to me. I would have never let him go back. I'm proud of everything I did to fight for Alan and to fight for all the other Allens that are out there. I loved him, and I still love him now. <laughs>